Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Today, we're excited to welcome Dr. John Chenault, who is Associate Professor and Director of Anti-Racism Initiatives in Undergraduate Medical Education at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. So, John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So, John, it might be a great place to start is if you tell us about your role at UofL. Well, I have a really interesting job, and that is my primary uh, duties involve working to remove uh, structural racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, all euphemisms, from the medical school curriculum, instruction, problem-based learning, as well as to teach aspects of medical history related to race and racism. So you are the director of anti-racism initiatives. Can you just tell us what anti-racism is? Technically, uh, we would say that anti-racism, let, let me phrase it this way. My preference is to say anti-racism is social justice. It's basically dismantling those structures within our society, wherever we find them, whether it's in the public sector or the private sector, that uh, result in marginalizing individuals, limiting their opportunities, denying them access to health care, education, housing, and et cetera. So anti-racism is engaged in not only exposing those structures, but finding ways to dismantle them. So this is, this is hugely important work. And I know the first time that we met several years ago, uh, it was actually at an EndNote training. So <laughs> will you tell us how you got, uh, what, what your previous role was and how you got into this role? So as an EndNote uh, instructor, I was working uh, for the Kornhauser Health Sciences Library. I was a medical librarian. And uh, at the same time, I've been a faculty member in Pan-African Studies for many, many years. And I sort of bridged the two disciplines in, in, in terms of looking at medical history. So in Pan-African Studies, I taught courses on slavery, slave trade, a course called Race, Color, and Consciousness, and a course called uh, Survey of, of American Diversity. And all of these things um, really gave me a foundation in the history of this country, and I incorporated within that the history of medicine in this country. So these are the kinds of things that um, I've sort of packaged together to formulate my approach to dealing with anti-racism, social justice, and these other issues. Your role is specifically in the School of Medicine. Why do you think that uh, healthcare providers need to know about anti-racism? Well, as I teach uh, my students and have lectured on, at conferences nationally and internationally, uh, physicians are responsible for the invention of race and scientific racism. As a result, doctors have a unique responsibility for dismantling those things. So when we go back in medical history and we look at how race is constructed, um, who else would have the knowledge, the insight, and the social status 
to make determinations about differences between human populations? Who else is in a position to uh, study or claim to observe these differences uh, and report them out? And as a result of the role of physicians, uh, this becomes part of the institutionalization of discrimination in this country. You mentioned a moment ago dismantling racism. And so my question to you is how do you go about dismantling such a giant thing that kind of hovers over medicine? Like if we just stick through, you know, the, the medical curriculum and, and so forth. So a lot of what I've done recently is work on providing language guidelines. Words are extremely important in this process. They're the building blocks of society and how we, how we identify in terms of self-identification and how we identify or label and classify others. And so it's, it's a really difficult process, but we have to begin with sort of taking a cognitive approach. How we think about who we are and how we think about others is essential to dismantling this process. So, for example, um, uh, two of you in this room are pediatricians, correct? Or, oh, oh, only I'm sorry, one. only one. So, uh, given the way society is structured and society changes, there, there are things that we create out of time, out of the necessity of time, that have never existed before. And I have to say, Dr. Rabelais, pediatricians didn't exist before the 1930s. The word didn't even exist no, that's until the 1850s. So we have a whole profession now, and we have these uh, pediatricians who are also uh, have subspecialties. So it's yes. not just pediatricians, and I have no idea how many subspecialties we, we have. But my point of that is to say that um, we as people construct these identities. They're not fixed in nature. They're time-centered, they're historical, and sometimes we discard them because they no longer have utility. I'll give you an example. For over 100 years, there was a group of people in this country called mulattoes. They came into existence out of a social situation where Africans and Europeans were mixing, and they ended their existence when the Census Department decided it was no longer a useful category. So we have people that are being created, identities that are being created all the time. So you mentioned that they, this group went out of existence when the census decided that it was no longer useful. So who is deciding about these categories and what implications does that have for some of the work that you do? So the people that are making the decisions are powerful social actors in our society. And this is true across the board, anywhere you look. Doctors, lawyers, clergy, etc. they essentially determine our social reality. They play a significant role in deciding what we know and what we don't know. Right? So we rely on these professionals, these elite, in many cases, to make these determinations. When it comes to the Census Bureau, um, they were tasked, uh, the first census was 1790, they were tasked with collecting information based on what politicians told them. And the classifications they used were white, slave, and other. And that other category would include Native Americans, free African Americans in some instances. So this was a political decision that was made. But when you have these categories, uh, and we're all now subjected to these, there are different terms that are used, slave is no longer one of them, 
but you can't get a loan, you cannot apply to school, you can't do anything without checking some of these boxes that the government has defined as identity categories, including gender. Unfortunately, we make the assumption that these categories are real and that they're fixed, and we forget they're constantly in a state of flux. If you go back and look at the census history, <laughs> we've gone from you know white, slave, and other to a host of categories, and they've constantly changed over the since 1790. So, if you have someone who is listening and they think to themselves, well, I am not in a position to be choosing these categories or influencing these categories, so how is this relevant to me? What would you say to them? I would say that uh, we really need to think about who we are and how we self-identify. That we are not, um, we, we transcend uh, all those little boxes that we check. So if I start checking these boxes, African-American, male, elder, <laughs> a certain age, uh, married, you know, et cetera, uh, graduate degrees, all of that. If I, I cannot extract any one of those little boxes and, 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 and think of them as having really any material existence outside of the entirety of who I am, right? I'm not just an African-American. I'm not just a man. So our, our challenge is to really, really uh, transcend those narrow definitions because what happens is people ultimately start performing according to the scripts of those identities. They're not thinking about who they are really, they're thinking about what society says in terms of how they behave and interact with each other, how men and women interact. What is your charge as the director of anti-racism initiatives? What is your charge in the School of Medicine? So my charge is uh, to teach and to uh, help deconstruct these systems uh, of language, uh, these categories uh, that are stereotypes uh, from, the from, from the medical school curriculum, uh, as I said, problem-based learning, et cetera. That's my charge to, to coach faculty and how to do that as needed and to deal with any um, complaints that may arise. As a physician walks into an exam room or in a hospital bedroom, um, that certainly my generation was trained in that way, not, not even limited to race, though, because the first thing you're supposed to do is observe. Before you ask questions, before you take physical exam measurements and, and touch the patient, you can learn so much by watching. So in, I'll take in pediatrics because that's what my specialty is. When I walk in a room, I'm making assessments of what's the interaction between the child and the mother? What's that like, good or bad? Is the child alert, interactive with his mom or not? Is he eating Cheetos? It's always a good sign if you're eating Cheetos, by the way. It means you're not terribly sick. I don't have to worry about the ICU if you're eating Cheetos. <laughs> Barbecue potato chips is about the same as well. We, we watch to see how they're breathing. I look to see are they overweight or not because I know there are certain things that are more likely to happen or complicate my treatment decisions if they're overweight. Um, if they look very undernourished, so I have a 14-year-old girl who weighs 60 pounds, so, well, I've got something. And, and for me not to take that into account as I walk into the room would constrain my, my work as a doctor because I have to be worried about that last girl having anorexia, and, and I better be questioning about anorexia. If I just went in and was oblivious to this weight issue and just said, well, it's, 
She's going to be too sensitive if I talk to her mom about this. Then I'm not doing my job. I think what's hard for physicians, and I'll speak only for physicians now, is how do you turn off selective pieces that are artificial from the pieces that are important pieces of information that have to guide the history taking, physical exam, diagnostic workup, and treatment plan. Can you speak to that? Well, that's a, a really challenging question, Dr. Adelaide. But I, I can speak to it in this way. So those are all great observations, obviously central to making a good diagnosis or treatment regimen or whatever the goal of that visit is. The, uh, the problem, though, is um, turning off the prejudgment, the prejudices. So walking into a room, many physicians see an African-American patient in pain, and, and as I pointed out, they don't necessarily need this type of intervention. They'll be okay. You know, they can manage the pain all right. You know, they're black folks. They have a higher threshold for pain. So in part, what I'm getting at is that there is sort of a hidden curriculum in medicine as well that's based on medical folklore. These kind of things still linger on, as well as the socialization we've all had in the U.S. in terms of how we relate and, and, and view each other. I don't have a quick and ready solution for the switching off all of that programming that's gone on. That's a lot of psychological programming, neuro-linguistic programming, because when we say black and white, that opens up a whole history of things. Uh, the only thing I can say is that we have to change our educational process at the beginning, from the beginning, so that we, uh, we educate people to these issues, the social construction of these identities and what that really means and how it's deleterious for us not to know the difference between um, those things that we make uh, and those things that we truly are. Most of us, we have no idea who we are, honestly. Um, I, I know I've gone on for a little bit, but let me just make this point. In the last 50 years, almost everything we thought we knew about the animal world has been thrown completely out the window, right? Now, we're animals. That means everything we think about who we are is wrong. Because we were told as kids, well, you know, growing up in school, animals don't make tools, animals don't <laughs> communicate, animals don't this. Animals have cultures. Some animals, uh, it's been studied in England, cows have accents. A Yorkshire cow has a different accent than a Cornwall. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, so we, we have no idea about the natural world that we're living in and that we're a vital part of and is disappearing all around us. That's why we need to do a massive uh, education program in this country. It affects all of us, and we're seeing with the climate situation, that, that uh, we have not had the respect for the natural world, for animals of which we're part. So maybe one other way to think about it in follow-up to the question I asked is the difference between observations and assessments. Because observations should be verifiable, quantifiable, measured. Um, you either have sickle cell disease or you don't. You either have asthma or you don't. And, and, and they, whereas an assessment becomes 
this child is overweight and it's and I, and I make a set of judgments after that where it may be a, a there may be a medical explanation for this there are genetic disorders where children are driven to overeat because their brain's not wired to have a satiety center that turns it off um, and and maybe that's the the focal point for the education piece for Yes, you must make observations. You are compelled to make observations. That's part of what your job is. You can't do your work if you don't make observations. But dissect out the things that, where you take that observation and move to make an assessment then as a result of it. And that's what it sounds like you're describing, is that if you walked into the room and I see your, I'm not how tall you are, but you look 6'4", six, 6'5", six, at least to me. When I make the judgment that you must have been a basketball player and not somebody who went to music school, right? That's what you're talking about, that, that we make assessments off of the observation. And then from there, wherever our upbringing, our experiences, our teaching for 50 years, whatever it is that's inside of us, then moves into places that are not observable, quantifiable, verifiable facts about someone. Is that where we're going wrong? I, I think you hit it dead on the head. Um, we um, have to deal with that uh, sort of constant uh, negative reinforcement in our society to think of people as different, as not just different, but as uh, inferior, you know, qualifying that difference is where the problem comes in. We're all different. Everybody's different down to the level of the individual. But those distinctions should not lend themselves to inappropriate treatment, um, fear, or withholding treatment, withholding treatment. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to be able to compartmentalize. The first thing I like to do uh, in introducing myself to a group of students is to point out what, what my locus of of enunciation is, the place that I'm coming from. What's my socialization? That speaks to my orientation. So if I say something uh, that might be inappropriate or untoward, it may not be intentional as a result of my upbringing. And so correct me. You know, I, I can only respond based on what my experience is to a great extent. And so um, we need to be mindful of that. Uh, and let me say this applies to everybody. And in, in, in if, we, if we compartmentalize and say in white America, there is class. There are real class distinctions. And first of all, everybody in this country is, who is poor is despised. America hates poor people. And so if you're white and poor, you are despised. Skin color is not a pass. So we have to think in broad terms how um, discrimination applies to, to can apply to anyone. If you are a, 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 an ethnic ancestry that came from anywhere other than England during the period, the height of immigration in this country, you were not considered white. If you came from Italy, Spain, Central Europe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these things are constantly changing, but they reflect a history where no one is safe from discrimination uh, based on those who are in power making decisions about who is acceptable and valued and who is not. So you talked about telling students that you interact with to correct you. 
I could imagine students, uh, our health profession students going into a clinical setting with, um, you know, acting physicians or nurses or dentists that maybe wouldn't feel comfortable correcting uh, in, in a clinical setting. How do, what do you talk to the students about that have those concerns? Well, well you, you also hit it dead on the head. Uh, no, they're not. They're reticent uh, to do that, to engage that way. That does not prevent them from making a complaint. So, you know, it, it goes both ways. Faculty who are teaching or clinicians in the hospitals need to be mindful that they are also being observed and that people are aware of microaggressions, micro, you know, prejudices being expressed, and, and they will report that back. I would say that medical students should not put their careers at risk and put themselves in any har in harm's way by confronting folks uh, uh, like that. Um, I, there are other ways to go about addressing those issues. And let me tell you, I've had examples of, of them doing just that. Now some will speak up in classes. Uh, it's a little different environment in a classroom. But rounding, that's another world. And again, the, uh, the hidden curriculum, the sort of informal things that doctors say to each other or say about a patient, you know, outside the patient's uh, room, uh, those are the things that undermine uh, good, good medicine, good medical care. What is the future of anti-racism work? I mean, it could either be here at UofL or just broadly. Where do you see this? I, I imagine this is not something that, okay, I learned it and I'm done. This is something that needs to be always on our minds. Well, I was asked that question in the interview for the job as director of uh, anti-racism initiatives. And um, they, they, they ask, um, what, what do you think should be the primary goal uh, the first year on the job uh, in terms of resolving this issue? And, um, you know, ideally, uh, in the first year, I would have solved all the problems and they wouldn't need me anymore. Uh, but <clears throat> we are, we are uh, having to fight two fronts at the same time. We have to move forward. At the same time, we're dealing with the baggage from the past. And that's the challenge that we have. It's, it's a sort of a balancing act. Um, we have to deal with that baggage because this country has not confronted its history. So all these ghosts are roaming the landscape and we constantly are haunted by them. And, and, and then we look up and wonder why. Why are we having such a social, a fragmented society, et cetera? Well, we've never stopped to address these issues. So I think going forward, um, we have to walk, we have to go and, and, and handle, uh, it's like a juggling act. We have to juggle all of these things simultaneously. We have to address the past because it's our template to understand what's going on. And we have to prepare to break that those, those habitual patterns of discrimination, um, marginalizing populations, et cetera, uh, with whatever it takes, because we're in a crisis. As far as African Americans are concerned, um, 200, 220 African Americans die each day, uh, premature and excess deaths from all causes because of discrimination in this society, because of racism. So this is a crisis. We've, we've, we've spoken about uh, these issues, um, you know, in, in a presentational way. So now we need to light some fire under them and say, look, since 1900, 10 
million African Americans have died excess and premature deaths. This is a massive problem, and I'm only speaking of African Americans. The problems exist in uh, Native American communities, et cetera. So um, we have to uh, find a way to balance this uh, challenge of uh, confronting the past and hopefully preparing for the future. John, we always ask uh, our guests to tell our listeners or, or ask our listeners what to do after they listen to this podcast. So what is one thing that you would like the listeners to apply from what they've heard here today? That's a great question. Um, I would like uh, people to apply in their best way possible uh, a personal uh, encounter with their boxes. I want people to start thinking outside the box. Think about every box you've checked and then see what the limitations are for those little categories and think that you are far beyond any one of those. You're more than a man. You're more than a gay man or a gay woman. You're more than an African-American. You're more than a Latino. What about your animal uh, characteristics and qualities, which we tend not to think about? So I would like people to think outside the box. So Dr. Chenault, thank you so much for being here. You've really given us a lot to think about. Great. Thank you for having me. On next Friday's faculty feed, you're in for a real treat. We have a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Chris Barton, be with us as he talks through the neuroscience of learning and the implications for all of us. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at factfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.